Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I am in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 15 to 25 in the middle of the chapter. In our last audio we cover the first 14 verses which I entitled Jesus is a better sacrifice than animals. In this portion of scripture here, verses 15 through 25 of Hebrews 10, I'm going to call this a new covenant and a new high priest. Now, all of these passages in chapter 10 and chapter 9 are all variations on a theme, which is that we have a better priest than Moses, than Aaron under the Mosaic law, and we have a better covenant than the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant. We start in verses 15 and 16 of Hebrews 10. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for after he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now, this is a quote from Jeremiah. Actually, this has already been quoted in chapter 8. It's a repeat. The book of Hebrews, the author of this book, is somewhat wordy, somewhat repetitious. The Holy Spirit testifies. Quoting Jeremiah, what does that show? Because it's the Holy Spirit. That's testifying. The author doesn't say Jeremiah is testifying. He says the Holy Spirit testifies. This shows several things. First of all, the Holy Spirit is God. Now, why do we know that? Because in the portion of Scripture that the author is quoting in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that his words were the Lord's declaration. Let me go ahead and read that verse to you. Jeremiah 31, 33. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. The Lord's declaration. So Jeremiah is quoting Yahweh. And the author of the book of Hebrews says it was the Holy Spirit who said what Yahweh said. So that means the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit, another thing we know about the Holy Spirit, he's an encourager of the brethren. Brethren, by applying the scripture to the lives of Christians, he encourages Christians. The Holy Spirit was using Jeremiah's prophecy to encourage the Christians about the new covenant. This verse also tell us, tells us that the Holy Spirit writes Scripture because the author of the book of Hebrews says the Holy Spirit is testifying. And so, and then he gives us Scripture. So it's the Holy Spirit writes the Scripture. The last thing this tells us is that the Holy Spirit is personal, not impersonal, as Steve Ackerson and John Gill say. Here's a good quote from John Gill. Quote, this preface to the following citation shows that the books of the Old Testament are of divine original of divine origin and authority, that the penmen of them were inspired by the Holy Ghost, that he existed in the times of the Old Testament, that he is truly and properly God, the Lord, or Jehovah, that speaks in the following verses, and that he is a distinct divine person and the author of the covenant of grace. Well, I won't get into the covenant of grace because I think that's a reform made-up doctrine, but the rest of that quote is pretty good, talking about how the Holy Spirit inspires inerrant scripture. The Holy Spirit also testifies to about this in verse 15, for after he says, verse 16, well, before I get to after he says, let me point out something to you about the Trinity here in the book of Hebrews. Jameson Fawcett Brown points out that all three persons of the Trinity testify to the new covenant. For example, the Father does in Hebrews 5.10, and he, Jesus, was declared by God, by God the Father, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So God makes Jesus or testifies that Jesus is a high priest. That's God the Father, God the Son in Hebrews 10.5. Therefore, as he, Jesus the Son, was coming into the world, he, Jesus, said, You, God the Father, did not want sacrificing and offering, but you, God, prepared a body for me, Jesus. And so there's Jesus speaking about his high priesthood, about him being prepared as a sacrifice, a sacrifice 
which he himself would carry into heaven. That's the Son, Hebrews 10, 5. And in the Holy Spirit here in verse 15, the Holy Spirit testifies. Trinitarian stuff all scattered through the New Testament. Now we go to the end of verse 15 for after he says, and then verse 16, this is the covenant I will make. This is a the preliminary, the preface to the quotation from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now you might remember this back in Hebrews, the most famous and full quotation of this passage from Jeremiah, the new covenant passage, I call it, is in Hebrews 8. Let me read you just one verse of Hebrews 8. This is verse 10. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So you see, it's a complete repetition here. Very important idea of the new covenant. Now, Jeremiah says, this is the covenant. This is the covenant I will make. He's talking about in the future. And he says that he will make it with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, which shows that he's using Old Testament language to refer to the church, the new Israel. So he's talking about the new covenant. Let's look at some scriptures that show this new covenant. Hebrews 7.22. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Better sounds like new. Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance, etc., etc. So... Here we once again have a reference to Jeremiah predicting the new covenant in the times of Jesus the Messiah. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, says Jeremiah, as quoted by the author of the book of Hebrews. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone, external, with external threats and punishments. The new covenant is written on Christians' hearts with internal urges and stimulations to loving good work. Big difference. Hebrews 10, verses 17 through 18, he adds, as the Holy Spirit adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. The Holy Spirit added is added what Jeremiah said further. I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let me quote Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor as his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, that was quoted in chapter 8, Hebrews 8. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. So this is another part of the new covenant. I will never remember their sin. This is quoted in Hebrews 10:17. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. That was also quoted in Hebrews 8:12. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Folks, it's over. Our consciences are clean, cleansed. Jesus has totally dealt with our sins, expunged them from our conscience. We are free from the condemnation and death that comes from our sins. I don't care what you did in your sordid past. Paul the Apostle had a sordid past. He murdered Christians, and his conscience was totally cleansed because Jesus totally forgave him for his sins. I'd like to see any other religion in the world beat that. Someone has made the observation that Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31 for a different purpose to here in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 8, that purpose was to show that the Old Covenant was obsolete. We have a New Covenant. But here the quotation is to show that the Old Covenant cannot forgive sins. That's the emphasis here. Old Covenant can't forgive sins. That's why we had to keep offering no sacrifices every year. But Jesus, once for all, offered his sacrifice, his body, and he didn't do it again. So that means it's finished. It's complete. His work is complete. No more 
No more guilt for sins. No more punishment for sins. The new covenant offers what the old covenant could not offer, which is forgiveness of sins. The old covenant promised the old Israel, the Jews, a promised land. But the new covenant promises the new Israel, the church, forgiveness of sins and heaven. Now, you know, real estate's nice, but it doesn't compare to forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God in heaven. Now, Adam Clark's got an anti-Catholic jab here, so let's just give it. Now, where there is forgiveness of these, the author says in verse 18, there is no longer an offering for sin. But if you are a Catholic and you believe that the Mass is being offered for your sin every week, well, guess what? That directly contradicts this verse. That's for all of you who even care about Protestant Catholic polemics like Protestants used to care about. Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, the therefore is therefore for this reason. Since Jesus has already forgiven, has forever forgiven our sins, as we just talked about in the last couple of brothers, since he's forgiven us our sins, therefore, brothers, and he's going to say in the next verse, which I haven't gotten to yet, therefore, brothers, by new and living way, he's appeared for us through the curtain. And he goes on a long, this is a long sentence here, and since we have a great high priest, draw near to that priest. We'll get to that in just a minute. Let's stick with verse 19 here. Therefore, brethren, since, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, this verse, as the NIV Study Bible says, starts another selection of practical application and exhortation. So it's going to get a little bit more practical now, less theological, less historical, less legal, less reference to the Old Testament law. Most of the rest of the book is exhortation, as Steve Axon points out. The first part of the book was mostly argument and information. Now, this exhortation that we should enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, that's the continuation of a previous exhortation, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore... Because we got this great high priest, therefore, for this reason, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us at the proper time. And that's very similar to what he says in Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, since we've got this high priest, and since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he's going to say in a couple of verses later, therefore, draw near to the throne of grace. As he said in Hebrews 4, approach the throne of grace. Now, this approach in the throne of grace, this is God we're talking about. And God can scare people to death because he's pretty awesome and we're pretty small. I mean, you see in the in the scriptures when somebody sees an angel or an, uh, some kind of a theophany, or appearance of God somewhere, they usually hit the ground pretty hard from fear. Now, now this verse is saying we can just walk right in there. Walk right in there and talk to God because he has become our friend. He's no longer our enemy. And he loves us with an all-consuming love that nobody can even write about can even express he loves us so much. And he must, considering how horrible we have been when we've sinned against him. So we have boldness now, because Jesus, our high priest, has opened up a way to get into the high priest, into the sanctuary. That's the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly holy of holies, if you will. The antitype, the substance of the shadow, the type of the tabernacle's holy of holies. We get, we get in there through the blood of Jesus. The blood, of course, stands for life. Jesus gave his life for us. That means he substituted his life for us on the cross, the substitutionary atonement. We deserve to die according to the law of God, but Jesus died for us instead. He gave his blood. He gave his life. So now we can live and approach God in the heavenly sanctuary because Jesus died for our sins. Hebrews 10 verse 20. 
This is in the middle of a sentence, so I need to go back and pick up the beginning of it. Verse 19, Therefore, brother, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Christ, verse 20, By a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh, new and living way as opposed to the old and dead way of the Mosaic law, the old covenant. Again, this is the old theme. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's a living way because Jesus gives life. Trying to keep the Mosaic law gives death. Big contrast. All you people out there who want to get back under the old covenant. All you Seventh-day Adventists who want to keep the old covenant law. I never have understood you guys. He has opened, that's Jesus, has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Now the curtain is referring to the veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The holy place is the 10 by 20 cubit room that has the table of showbread and the seven lamp, seven pronged candle stand and the golden altar of incense you, and the golden altar of incense is right up against that curtain that veil through which if one enters you will enter, you will be into the holy of holies and so jesus says that curtain that separated you from god's sanctuary that's in the old testament in the tabernacle that curtain has been parted just like jesus's flesh was parted when he when his flesh was split open when he was crucified on the cross his blood came out, and so he could, therefore, we could, with that blood can enter into the Holy of Holies through his split flesh. Now, that's a little bit gross, a gross metaphor, if you will, but that's kind of the idea that the author is getting at. Now, of course, this was done symbolically after the crucifixion in a wonderful way. In Mark fifteen thirty-eight. then, after Jesus' crucifixion, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. There was an earthquake, the lentils cracked, the curtain split, and now you could just walk right into the Holy of Holies like you weren't supposed to do. Only person allowed in the Holy of Holies was the high priest with blood on the Day of Atonement. But now, any day, without blood of goats, we can walk through that veil into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence, because Jesus opened that veil for us by dying, by having his flesh rent during the crucifixion and his blood spilt. We go now to Hebrews 10 verses 21 through 22, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now we finally get to the ends of all the therefores and senses. Let me, let me go over those again for you. Verse 19. Therefore, since we have boldest into the sanctuary, and verse 20, by a new and living way, and since we have a great high priest, so therefore, since we can enter the sanctuary through Jesus' flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. So basically the author is saying here, since we have a high priest who can get us into God's throne room, well, let's take advantage of that and draw near to him. Now, a lot of people don't take advantage of that. They get in trouble or they just go through the troubles of life and they don't bother to go into God's throne room and say, my father, I need some help here. They don't do it. Well, I can do it. I can, ha I can handle it. I believe in myself. I've heard that so many times in China. It makes me ill the more I think about it. I can do it. I don't need God. I, I. That's the way they're taught over there. I don't need I don't need a man I, the women especially I don't need a husband I can do it myself well no we need to take advantage of our the fact that we can enter into the throne room of God the maker of the universe and say help me God things are not going well down here either because of my sin or because of the sins of my acquaintances and friends and family whatever but things are not good because this life is a veil of tears folks it is a hard hard life and we need to approach 
the throne room of God. Since we have a great high priest, of course, that high priest is Jesus. Now, this idea of Jesus being a high priest is mentioned here in verse 10, but it's also mentioned in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's an incredibly important theme in the book of Hebrews. Let's look at this. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Hebrews 5.5, In the same way the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son today, I have become your father. What the author is saying there is Jesus didn't exalt himself to be a high priest. The Father exalted him to be a high priest. A bonus high priest in Hebrews 5. And he, Jesus, was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 26. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 8, 1. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. So, it's clear what's emphasized here. Jesus is our high priest where? He's over the house of God. Of course, that's referring to the church, which is now the house of God. Verse 22, let us draw near. Now, this idea of drawing near is also mentioned in other places in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Similar idea, approach, draw near. Hebrews seven nineteen. for the law perfected nothing, but our better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The better hope, of course, being the new covenant, the high priesthood of Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 22, says we should draw near with a true heart. What is a true heart as opposed to a false heart? As opposed to a heart doesn't exist good synonym for that is a sincere heart. With a sincere heart, what we say is what we believe. Go with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, why would we need assurance? In the Old Covenant, any priest besides the high priest, any ordinary priest, would be killed for approaching the Holy of Holies. You couldn't go in there, but we can, so we can go with boldness. An Old Testament priest, an ordinary priest, cannot have that boldness because he should be shaken in his boots because he knows if he sets foot in that Holy of Holies, he's a dead man. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. God wants us to come to him and pray to him and ask of him as well as to praise him and all those other things too and to pray for other people, but also for us, as he says in one of our scriptures, for grace in time of need, which happens all the time. And as we come, why do we have boldness? Because our hearts are sprinkled clean, as the author says in Hebrews 10, verse 22. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We don't have to worry about going to God and having him strike us dead because we did something bad. Our consciences are clean. We have been sprinkled clean. Now, that term sprinkled is an Old Testament term. It refers to the Levitical practices of sprinkling with either blood or water or both, maybe. The author's not clear. Here's an example, Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from dead works to serve the living God. So our consciousnesses are sprinkled clean by blood. And of course, that's the blood of the Messiah, as Hebrews 9:14 explicitly says. Here's an Old Testament example of sprinkling. 
Numbers 19, 2 through 4. This is the red heifer ceremony. This is the legal statute that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never been yoked. Give it to Eliezer the priest, and he will have it brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Eliezer the priest is to take some of his blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times around the front of the tent of meeting. So this idea of sprinkling with blood is all through the Levitical laws. And the author, remember, he's writing to Jews who are familiar with all familiar with all this, and so he says, "Hey, Jesus has sprinkled your conscience clean, pure." He also refers to the fact that our consciences are washed clean, sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Well, our bodies—that stands for your person. You are clean before God. You're washed in pure water, and that's a symbol. This. Even in today is easy to understand because we still wash. We don't sprinkle with blood, but we do wash with water. But in particular, the author was referring to all, or at least Steve Atkinson claims, and I think he's right. The author is referring to all the ablutions, the ceremonial washings that were a big part of Judaism. Here's an example, Leviticus 16:4. He, the high priest, is to wear a holy linen tunic, and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He must tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. So they had to wash before he put on clothes. High priest, high priest clothes. Numbers 8, 7. This is what you must do to them for their purification. Sprinkle them with the purification water. Have them shave their entire bodies and wash their clothes and so purify themselves. So sprinkling with blood and sprinkling with water, or washing with water, I should say. This is common Old Testament practice, and it symbolizes purity, cleanness. And that's why we're bold. We can be bold to approach the throne of God, because we're pure. He doesn't look at us as sinners anymore. You can sum up the Old Testament Levitical system for cleansing in two words, blood and water. And guess what flowed when Jesus died on the cross? Blood and water. Remember, the soldier stuck the shaft in his side, and now it came blood and water. That blood... And that water purified us, made us holy. We are no longer sinners. We are saints, and we can walk with confidence and boldness into the throne room of God. Hebrews 10:23. let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on is translated in the KJV as hold fast to the confession. The NIV says hold unswervingly. I like that one better. Hold unswervingly. To the confession. The confession? What's a confession? The object of our confession is Jesus. A confession is an oral statement of the what you believe. Hold on to it. Don't deny Jesus by going back into Judaism as the Hebrew Christians were tempted to do. Here's some other scriptures about confession. Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. Same idea here, holding fast to the, conf- to the confession in Hebrews 4.14, and same thing here in Hebrews 10.23. Hold fast, hold on. Now, the idea is, it's just, it's, we don't just give lip service to our confession. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, was cru- dead, crucified, and buried, raised again on the third day. You know, that's just... That's just being able to recite something from memory. Holding fast to the confession means you continue to believe it in the face of persecution. Hold on. Hold on means you're in trouble and you're holding on to a rope. The wind is blowing and you're holding on to the mast of the sailboat that's about to sink. Hold on to the confession 
of our hope. Now, a confession implies, as Adam Clark says, that there was general consent among Christians on all the important articles of their faith and practice, which, of course, led to the early Christian creeds. That general consent did that. They were The creeds were the expressions of common consent among all Christians. There were three creeds that every Orthodox Christian should be able to recite without mental reservation, without caveat, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And when I say the Apostles' Creed, I mean the version of the Apostles' Creed that doesn't have Jesus descended into hell. That was the earliest version of it. So if you can say those creeds, you're Orthodox Christian. That means Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Catholics, and Protestants all agree with this. And by golly, we do disagree on a lot of things, do we not? But we agree on the essentials. That's our common confession. Confession of our hope. Hope is a confident expectation of the future, a future that you cannot see. Hope is a subset of faith. Faith is believing in something you can't see in the past or the present or the future. Hope is believing in something you can't see in the future. So hope is a special aspect of faith. we got to hold on because a lot of times we can't see some good stuff. We see all the bad stuff. The author tells the Christians in Jerusalem there, or the Hebrew Christians, he says, Hold on to the confession of your hope without wavering. Now, of course, he's referring to the Hebrew Christians some of whom were being tempted to go back to Judaism, don't waver and go back to the law. Remember, the Hebrews on the Exodus wavered before they were about to enter the Promised Land. Oh, boy. So you want to go back to Egypt, where it's safe and secure, as Keith Green used to sing? (laughs) Yes, sir, buddy. God delivers, and the first thing we think of is, I want to go back to slavery. It was safer back there. I might have been a slave, but at least I had bread and water and a roof over my head. Boy, if that doesn't speak to the human condition, I don't know what does. We all love security, and we will trade our freedom for security any chance we get. In politics, that's a common motif. Oh, the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, some people, it's been going on now for three months. Some churches right now still can't meet. Because in America, the land of the free and the land of the First Amendment and freedom of worship, they can't go to church. Now, of course, the whorehouses are open. Now, of course, the weed shops are open and the abortion clinics are open. But, oh, no, oh, no. The Antichrist governors of some of the states have decided that, oh, no, we can't go to church. And it's all for health reasons, of course. Yeah, right. Oh, we can go out and protest and we can riot in the cities. That's not going to harm anybody with the COVID-19 virus. But by golly, we can't go to church. So anyway, let's hold fast our confession of hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That means he's going to take care of you. So hold fast. He's faithful. Second Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, in other words, if we fall away from Jesus, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How would he deny himself? He would deny himself by saying, uh, no, you're not really my son. I don't care about you anymore. No, he's going to take care of us. He cares about us always. What's that verse in Hebrews 12? I will never leave you or forsake you. One of my favorite verses, Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus will never, ever let you down. He is trustworthy. Hebrews 3, 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. He was faithful to God the Father. Hebrews 3, 6, But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. He's faithful to look after his church, his household. Hebrews 11.11, by faith even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Now that's talking about God the Father, but God the Father is faithful to his 
covenant promises to Abraham, which is land, offspring, and blessing to the nation, which includes, of course, the spread of the church all over the world. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able He's faithful to deliver you from all your trials and temptations. He will provide a way of escape so that you're able to bear it. Why? Because he is faithful. He's not going to let you down. 1 Thessalonians 5:24. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. 1 Thessalonians 3:3. 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. I have been a Christian for approximately 62 years, and I have met my share, fair share of temptations, trials, and troubles. And I'll guarantee you one thing, Jesus has never let me down, and he never will. If you don't believe that, give him a try. Try putting your life in his hands and watch him take care of you. We go to Hebrews chapter eleven, chapter 10, verse 24. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. As Steve Ackerson says, it is every Christian's job to encourage every Christian for whom he has responsibility. And that would be especially the people that you led to the Lord. I still to this day get on my cell phone and call people back in China that I led to the Lord. How are you doing? Some of them are doing okay. Some of them are not doing okay. But they ain't nothing better than encouragement. I'm going to tell you. Just to have people just say something, you know it, but you need somebody to tell you. That God is faithful. Just tell me as I'm going through my trial. Tell me that God is faithful. We're supposed to be concerned about one another. Why? In order to promote love and good works. Now promote, that is a plain vanilla translation. Let me give you some other translations. NIV, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Well, that's a little bit more punchy. Steve Atkinson translates spur as, or, or gives some synonyms for spur this way, to agitate, to foment, to provoke, to stimulate. Stimulate one another to love and good works. I think that's the King James. I like that one, stimulate. But how about let's agitate each other to do good works. Let's foment good works with ourselves. Let's provoke good works from ourselves. Now, that shows that good works do not automatically flow from a, Christian's, from a Christian because we can grow weary in doing good and we can become discouraged very, very easily. We need brothers and sisters around us encouraging us to keep going. Promote love. Love is action. Please, let's help these people out on the mission field that are going through such horrible stuff and we're complaining about our little aches and pains and they're out there living in horrible conditions. Maybe we ought to give them some money. Maybe we ought to show them love by giving them some money. Unless maybe we ought to pray for them on a regular basis. Promote love and good works. Now, this is one more passage in the scripture where we're supposed to do good works. Good works, of course, is not meant to be a foundation of our salvation because that is anathema to the scriptures and contradictory to the scriptures. But good works are a fruit of our salvation. Good works are not the root, but they are the fruit of our salvation. Nothing wrong with that. We should encourage other Christians to do good works. Now, this promoting love... It's interesting because we have a promotion of faith, hope, and love, the Christian Trinity, if you will. No, I'm sorry, not the Christian Trinity, but the, I don't know how to say that. The famous triad of Christian virtues is faith, hope, and love, of course. Now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, as in 1 Corinthians. Well, look at here. In verses 22, we have faith. In verse 23, we have hope. In verse 24, our verse here, we have love. Verse 22, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10:23. next verse, let us hold on to the confession of our hope. And verse 24, let's promote love. Faith, hope, and love. 
right here in the book of Hebrews. We go to our last verse that we'll take up in this audio, verse 25. Not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do. In other words, we need to promote, we need to encourage one another. It's hard to encourage people if they're not there at the worship meetings. Not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. Staying away from worship meetings, that's, you know, let's just start right now. This is application run amok. People will often say, you're not coming to church regularly. Now, I think you should go to church regularly. I really do. I don't understand this Christian practice of staying away from church. I think it is utterly unscriptural, and I can prove it, but I don't need to use this verse to prove it because that's not what the author is talking about, not staying away from church. He's talking about complete apostasy, most probably. The NIV has, instead of staying away, has the word giving up our worship meetings. And giving up has the sense of desertion and abandonment, as one of my commentators says. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown does say it means intermittent attendance. He says that some people are habitually staying away from church meetings. That's not good, but they, but people have not completely apostatized yet because they are habitually missing the church meetings, but they haven't completely apostatized to where they're totally missing the church meetings. Well, I think that's just a little bit too subtle for me. I think that what he's talking about, not staying away from my worship meetings, is not apostatizing and going on to be a Jew and going back to the synagogue and leaving the church. If you do that, you can't encourage one another. Now, I could be wrong about that. That could be, he could be talking about people who are just spotty in their attendance because of the persecution or because of the temptation to go back to Judaism. But we need to remember the context of what's going on here. This is not just talking about lazy Christians doing a lot to get up up, get up on Sunday morning. This is talking about persecuted Christians, horribly persecuted Christians. I mean, they were being robbed of all their possessions. They were being killed. And that might make one tend to not want to go back to church. So let's remember the context here. Now, what's the purpose of church meeting? First Corinthians 4, you come together to edify one another. Well, here we show that if you don't stay away from your church meeting, you can encourage each other. Let me read it again. Verse 25, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other. In other words, the reason that you come together is to encourage one another. That's the purpose of a meeting. And by golly, that's what church meetings do. They always do me. Never fail. I'm, in fact, I can remember a particular church I was going to. I wasn't too happy with a lot of stuff. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I want to stay home. I want to study my Bible. We go to church, and I tell my wife, gosh, that was a good meeting. I feel so much better. I'm so glad I came. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I felt that way, I'd be a millionaire. Encourage one another. All the more encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. Now, that day, there's some options as to what that day is. Ackerson, Gill, and Clark mentioned the second coming of Jesus at the end of time, and I think that's the way a lot of people take it, but I don't. Ackerson, Gill, and Clark mention another option, which is is Jesus is coming in judgment in AD 70. See, that soon coming. Remember, the book was written in the 60s. If you knew that Jesus was going to come in AD, in the, after, before one generation passed away, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, if you knew that was coming and is now in the 60s, well, you know that one generation is about to pass. If you can just hold on, Jesus is going to come wipe out these people. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. We need to exhort one another with those words. You don't need to go back into Judaism and go into a temple that's going to be destroyed in just a few years. That would be a spur to help your fellow Christians to love and good works. So I think that's what it is. The day that you see coming near is 8070. 
Now, Gill and Clark also mention an option. It means the day of an individual's death. As you see the day coming near, promote love, promote each other to loving good works. I don't think that's what he was talking about. You're about to die, so you better get out there and do some good works. No, I just, no, I don't think so. Now, I said that was the day, it was probably 87. Let's look at some other scriptures in Hebrews, right here in chapter 10, in verse 37, which we won't get to today, next time. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. The coming one will come and not delay. Coming soon. That probably sounds like 8070. But now here in Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, we read this. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now that could very well be 8070. Remember, those Jews were suffering persecution. They were waiting. They wanted physical salvation from their persecutors. But I, when I was in Hebrews 9, I decided it was the end of time because of the appear, the arao, the Greek word that means appear, means you see somebody. And, of course, Jesus' judgment coming, you couldn't see. Now, that involves a Greek translation. I could very well have been wrong about that. That very well could have been eighty seventy, and not the end of the world. I don't know for sure, but we do know that Whenever our judgment comes, it's going to take some encouragement and stimulation to loving good works from our fellow Christians as we wait for salvation and deliverance. So don't forget to encourage your brother. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with Hebrews 10, verses 15 to 25. In our next audio covering Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 through 39, excuse me, chapter verses 26 through 39, we will take up that vexing question of can a Christian lose his salvation? We already mentioned that in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. The last part of the chapter parallels Hebrews chapter 6. This, of course, is always an exciting topic to discuss. We'll do that in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.